If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 14 through 29. And we are constantly thanking the Lord for his grace in our lives. And I always try to be real with you all. And I just want to share with you a real thought this morning. Before we get, it has nothing to do with anything. Just thankful for God's grace that this morning your pastor forgot his Bible. So it happens. Okay? It ha- we just, it's okay. I got another one, right? But it happens to the best of us. All right? So uh, it's okay. We got God's grace. All right? So just, just want to share this morning how good God's grace is that at times even you leave the door of your house and you forget your Bible and you're the pastor of the church. So um, thankful for backup Bibles, which come in handy, and thankfully all the Bibles say the same thing. So we're okay, all right? But as you have your copy of God's Word and you turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 is where we'll be. I want to start with number one, know the power of the gospel. And I want to share with you a story that illustrates the power of the gospel that leads us into Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Many of you know that this past week, uh, Ryan, our college minister, and I uh, traveled across the big pond over to London to see and experience uh, a church there in London with Thomas West and Elizabeth West, who were uh, sent out of our church uh, three years ago. Uh, Thomas and Elizabeth grew up in here at First Baptist Church, and the parents still a part of our church. And so uh, Thomas and Elizabeth are hometown heroes at First Baptist Church, the golden child of First Baptist Church, as I like to joke with him about. And so they were uh, commissioned out of there in uh, North Carolina and we have partnered with Thomas Elizabeth, and when you give to First Baptist Church, uh, you partner with Thomas Elizabeth West and 30-some-odd other church planners. They're not odd, but they're good. Some, you know, 30 different church planners as they plant churches in hard-to-reach places, and London is one of the hardest and most unchurched areas in the world. It's hard to believe that London would be one of the most hard-to-reach places and one of the most difficult places to crack with the gospel. And there, Thomas and Elizabeth West have planted their church, Redeemer Queens Park, and you are a partner with them. And so they wanted to express their gratefulness to you. But there is one story in particular that illustrated to me the power of the gospel to transform lives. There was a man, and we'll call him Bill for sake of security. Bill grew up in a region and in a country that was known and is known for its radical Islamic presence. In fact, Bill grew up in a place in which right down on the corner from him is a jihadi training ground, that their area was known for people fleeing into it to learn how to go on jihad. And so Bill, his entire life, grew up in a jihadi breeding ground in this radical Islamic nation. Bill petitioned his father to come to London to study. And his father sent him to London to study at one of the universities. They're very prestigious universities there in London. And as he began to study, wouldn't you know, the Lord sent him and allowed him to stay and reside at an Anglican priest's home. When you and I pray for the Lord to open the doors of people of peace, to be on the pathway of different people of different faiths, you see the Lord answer this prayer in Bill's life to lead him to an Anglican priest home from a radical jihadi Muslim area from this area to London to stay in an Anglican priest home. Now, as they would stay for several months before COVID hit, they would stay up late at night talking about scripture, talking about the book of Mark, and they would be arguing back and forth. And Bill did not come to faith, but 
the day before, the week before, Bill was supposed to go back to this country because of COVID and going online for classes. Bill had a dream and a vision that night. As you have been praying through the month of Ramadan that the Lord would allow dreams and visions or whatever to open the door for these Muslims to come to faith in Jesus, Bill began having dreams and visions where this man that he did not know would come to him and say, I want to give you a new heart. Now, this guy had no idea what this meant, uh, a new heart. What is he talking about? He was amongst people in which they were thirsty and parched and Bill would go to this Anglican priest and say, what does this mean? I don't understand what we're talking about here. And so Bill had to go back to this country to continue his training. And so this Anglican priest copied some pages from the book of Mark and sent Bill back home to this country. Bill still not having faith in Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, still claiming um, Islam went back to his country. And as he's studying behind a door in his home, he's studying the scripture. His brother walks in on him studying the scripture and asks him what he's doing. And Bill tries to hide it from his brother. His brother sees that he's studying the book of Mark and tells his father. And his father disowns him and he's left with nothing. Somehow one of his other brothers agrees to pay for him to come back to London to continue studying. Under the stipulation that he will not continue his studying of the Bible. So wouldn't you know, Bill comes back to London. And there on a soccer field, football field, he's playing spike ball with none other than an IMB journeyman. A journeyman. Much like we have sent out uh, Mary Conley Teal to Africa on journeyman. You know what journeyman is? Two-year commitment from the IMB to go to a hard-to-reach place and be trained to go. So there this guy Bill is on a football slash soccer field in London playing spike ball. And at the end of that time, that IMB journeyman hands Bill this, a biography of Jesus, which is the book of Mark. And Bill begins to open the book and see the book of Mark and begins to say, why are you giving me this? What does this mean? And begin to say, I want to go to lunch. I want to ask questions because this is too odd. I've got dreams of this man who says, I want to give you a new heart. This Anglican priest sent me home. I've been reading the book of Mark and here you give me a biography of Jesus in the book of Mark. I need to talk more about this. Still not trusting in Jesus. Well, this IMB journeyman just happened to be working with Thomas and Elizabeth West at Redeemer Queens Park. And just three weeks ago, Bill gave his life to Jesus. And as we sat around the table and talked to Bill about what it meant for him to trust in Jesus, how his life had been transformed, how he began having dreams of being back in his homeland and seeing goats and sheep and his calling to go back and share with his people in this radical Muslim nation the hope that he has found in Jesus. Friends, that's the power of the gospel to transform a man who is living in a radical jihadist nation to come and be intercepted by an Anglican and an IMB missionary with the hope of the gospel. And so what I'm telling you today as we read Mark chapter 9, as we have studied through the book of Mark, the same things that we are reading in this room and studying and dissecting are the same things that are changing lives across the nation, across the world for the gospel. 
And if you would be here today and say, I'm just, I'm too far gone. I could never change or I'm not changeable. I'm not moldable. I could never change. Know that he is changing a witch doctor in Africa with the hope of the gospel. And he's changing a man who is dead set on jihad against other people who don't trust in Jesus and his heart has softened to the gospel. And if he can do that for them, you better believe that he can do it for you. And so sometimes we open up our copy of God's word just so cavalier, believing that we're just reading it. And here it is, another passage of scripture. But friends, this is the power of the gospel to change lives. And how beautiful it is when you see a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, that's the, that's the power of the gospel that we've got to know. I cannot overemphasize it enough that as we read our copy of God's word, it is the power of God to life. It's not just a book that we try to read and say, I just got to check the boxes. No, it is changing hearts and changing lives. It is restoring people together. It is restoring the hope of the gospel. It is giving peace that surpasses all understanding that you cannot find through checking the boxes of religious routine. It is life. It is peace. And it is hope. It transforms witch doctors in Africa and it transforms radical Muslims who are dead set on jihad to have a gentle voice to say, thank you, Jesus. And so that hope is available to you and I. And so as we read these next few passages from Mark chapter 9, 14 through 29, know that same hope is available to you this morning, the hope of the gospel. So let's, let's dive in here together. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Let's read it and let's come to it with that same expectation of life that can be changed. So let's read together. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And when he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into the water and to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a great crowd coming running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, help us this these next very short few moments, would you teach us, train us, open our hearts to receive, Lord? Let us recognize the power of the gospel, the power of what we read that's in front of us so that we would live accordingly. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The second blank on your outline is the up and the down. The up and the down. Last week, we looked at Jesus who climbed the Mount of Transfiguration and had this incredible mountaintop moment and experience, right? Jesus climbed the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and there he is up on the mountain and saw incredible things. He transfigured before them into his glorified state. And don't you know that that was an incredible experience to behold? This incredible mountaintop moment. And here they come down the mountain. And as they're coming down the mountain, what do they find but an argument? Just the right thing that you want to see after you've had this momentous, incredible experience. What do you do but come down the mountain and find that everybody's fighting, arguing? It's not that uh, abnormal in Scripture. You see that Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, to commune with the Lord. And this wonderful moment as, as Moses is on the mountain, what does he come back to find? These days, these many days of him communing with God, enjoying the presence of the Lord. And he comes down the mountain to find that the people have melted down their, their gold and they've made a golden calf and have begun worshiping the golden calf. Can you imagine? Oh man, communing with the Lord. This is so good. And you come down and thinking, what are y'all doing? Come on. I've just been on, where are y'all? What are you doing here? And here, God, uh, Jesus, up on the mountain, glorified, transfigured, all is good. And he's thinking, man, disciples, we're right here, rocking and rolling, ready to take the world by storm. And what does he find? But everybody's bickering and fighting. Jesus baptized. The Father comes and says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Everything is good and right. And then what is the next verse? Jesus is sent to be tempted by the devil. Pastor Jay used to say often, the devil comes after the dove. And how often in these ups and downs, and you've likely felt this in your life, that when you've attempted great things for the Lord, when you've experienced great things with the Lord, that the devil is right around the corner, ready to say, uh-uh, not happening. Not getting, uh-uh, we're not doing that. And how often do you say, as husband and wife, you know what? Hey, we're going to start intentionally praying together every night before we go to bed. And wouldn't you know, it's as you begin to start to pray together and you have these moments of great intimacy and prayer, the devil would say, oh, this ain't happening. Kid's about to get sick. Something about to happen, right? Not going to be praying together at night together. What you know is you go on marriage retreats or you go on personal retreats to reconnect to the Lord. As you have these moments to say, Lord, I'm going to get away and I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray and I'm going to connect with you. Wouldn't you know as you come down from those moments that that is the time often that the devil comes and he's ready to just knock it out of the park. Right, Aaron Judge slug right to the head just to say, uh-uh, you're going down, taking you out. And it seems so often the pattern is we have these moments of great ups that we experience the Lord's presence, that we're with him. The Lord is doing such great things in our lives. And it seems just as we're experiencing the goodness of the Lord, there comes the enemy. There comes our flesh to pull us down, to weigh us down. And you've you got to feel this as Jesus is right there with the disciples and things are good. He, he knows why he's coming down the mountain. And again, we would say, thanks be to God that even though he's up on the mountain, he continued to come down into the arguments, into the frustration, into their pain and sorrow and hurt. He continues to descend the mountain to come down to us in our mess, in our mire, in all of our struggles. And so here we recognize and we've got to be prepared for that sometimes, yeah, 
Sunday mornings are our greatest mornings of frustration with our kids and our spouses and our homes and individually it's the times when our alarm clocks don't work and that we just want to sleep and the enemy certainly comes before we have those moments but you better believe how many times as I have preached a sermon do I walk out the doors, get in my car and I am hit with the very thing that I've just preached on how many times have I written in my journal as I'm studying God's word that this is an important part of scripture. I've got to soak on this. I've got to, I've got to let this sink into my heart. Do I walk out the doors to start the day and it feels like the barrage of the enemy comes right specifically over those things. We have to recognize that the enemy comes in from the ups and to the downs. And so here you see Jesus ascending the mountain and coming down after this mountaintop moment and coming down. If there's any youth here today, I can remind you that some of those moments in my life were coming back from youth camp. It felt like I was on this mountain of wonder and everything was good. I just spent a week away from all distractions and you come home from youth camp and it feels like everything that could go wrong in your life just goes dead wrong. It feels like that in every way of life. And know that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, as we'll see in just a moment. So we see the ups and the downs, and then we see number two, Jesus undoing the devastation. Jesus undoing the devastation. So let's set the stage for what Jesus is going to do. So he walks in, and he sees that the people are just arguing. The scribes and the teachers, are there arguing about who knows what, but we know that they're arguing, and see the juxtaposition of this father and the son who are struggling and in need and their the son is uh, just casting out and, and got all these demons and what do you see but not the people loving and caring and helping but you see arguments happening all around. And sometimes the, the greatest thwarting of God's activity is God's people arguing. And two of you are arguments taking place, struggles taking place all the while the father is there saying, with discouragement that the disciples were not able to heal his son. And so feel the weight of this. The two dichotomies that the disciples are probably discouraged, that they've tried to take out this demon, they've tried to heal, but they've been unsuccessful. That Jesus has sent them out with the authority to cast out demons and to heal, and they've done it in other places in the book of Mark, but here they found one that they could not. So their buddies are up on the mountain having this wonderful moment with Jesus and here they are unable to take out this demon so they're discouraged. And then this father. We don't know how long this father has had to deal with his son but we know it's been since childhood. And so we know year after year this father has walked beside his son Time and time again as the son has been thrown into the fire, thrown into the water, tried to kill himself, tried to kill the demon, tried to kill the boy. Can you imagine for a moment the weight on this father's shoulders? And he was likely told, if you take your son to Jesus, he'll be healed. And here he is taking the son to the disciples who had healed others. But here, maybe in this last ditch effort, nothing. For a moment, feel the weight of all that's happening in this, these short passages. The disciples dejected. The father dejected. Coming down off the mountain, arguments taking place. And here, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? Recognize that it's been a long time. And the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Don't you see the pattern as we've been looking through the book of Mark, how often Jesus with compassion is moved to help the people. 
He, was, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. Compassion and compassion and compassion. Jesus often, the very chief hallmark of who he is, is he is a compassionate savior. Rather than staying on the mountain, he comes and moves towards them. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father immediately cried out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And we'll pack that away for just a moment. Jesus says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. And look at this for just a moment. And he cried out and convulsed terribly and came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. Let that sink in for a moment. That most of the people standing around looked at this corpse after Jesus had healed him and said, oh man, he's dead. It's over. Boy's dead. Imagine the dejection in the father to hear that his son is dead. The rumor is beginning to swirl that Jesus has healed this boy, but he is dead. I don't want to go to Easter on us because I know we've just gotten out of it, but at the same time, we're always in it, are we not? And so here, the people are saying the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. Verse 27. But... Jesus, right? We're reminded Easter was not just an isolated moment, but God, right? But Jesus. Feel those words hit your spirit. The boy was like a corpse. He was dead. But Jesus, right? When Jesus intersects the story, he takes the devastation and he undoes it. Years of pain and sorrow, years of hurt that are all real. They're all there. They're all an experience. But at that moment, Jesus reaches down and he touches the boy. He took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Feel how good that is. Feel how right that is that Jesus comes and he lifts this boy up, undoing the devastation that the enemy has come to do, to seek to steal, kill, and destroy. That how many places and times would you say a guy like Bill in the Islamic state of jihad, you would say, man, that guy is nothing. There's no way, there's no chance, there's no way this guy would come to faith. That everybody would say, by all accounts, he is dead in sin. But Jesus... And you may feel those words in your life that I am too far gone, that I could never be saved, that I would never be saved. Maybe there's somebody that you're praying for that you would say, there is no way, there is no how that they would come to faith, but Jesus. See, only God could take a man in the jihadi country and send him to an Anglican priest who would send him back and then send him back again to be on a soccer field with an IMB missionary to come to faith in Jesus through the reading of the book of Mark. Jesus undoes the devastation that the enemy comes to do. And then you see the beauty of the father's response even before this. And I just want to leave us maybe with this. As the father looks at Jesus and as a child cried out, what does the father say? I believe, but help my unbelief. It's your last little blank, or your second to last blank. Just, I believe, help me believe more. One theologian explained it this way that Jesus says that all things are possible for him who believes that this is not that having faith allows you to do anything that you like. Not that praying would allow you to do anything that you would like, that if you just pray hard enough, anything that you want could happen because you believe enough. No, not having faith allows you to do whatever you would like, but having this kind of faith puts no boundaries on what God is able to do. 
Sometimes we think if I just pray enough, then I can make the stained glass windows spin around or I can dunk a basketball or I can do these amazing things if, if I just prayed hard enough and sunk in praying hard enough. But what we recognize is that having that kind of faith puts no boundaries on what God is able to do in our lives. And so the Father, with, with a heart that just says, I believe, Lord, I believe, but help me because I recognize that I don't believe enough. And I can't think of, at times, a greater prayer for us to pray. Lord, I believe, and Lord, I recognize that you are able. But I also see what's in front of me. My son has gone through this for years. Nothing has been able to help. Lord, I believe, but Lord, help my soul to believe more. I, I need to cling more. I need to believe more. Help the size of my faith to expand. I heard kind of a funny story this week of a, of a businessman who was retiring and he wanted to take his wife on one great journey to celebrate their retirement. And so as they were going to go on this big journey, he rented and he hired out a captain of a, a plane to fly them on a little Cessna plane up and around that they thought that would be so much fun to fly on this little Cessna around the countryside. So the wife gets to the tarmac and she says, there is no way in this world that I'm getting on that tiny little plane, right? Not happening. So the, the, the husband just says, you don't, have, man, you don't have enough faith. I mean, this plane, it's going to be fine. But out of love for his wife, he goes and he books a normal commercial airliner to get on and fly to where they were going. And as they got to the plane, she looked at it and said, my faith has grown because the plane has grown. Right? She recognized that the plane got bigger. Her faith got increasingly bigger. And friends, I think at times we do believe that we have a God of the Cessna, this tiny little God who's not able to do much, just this little bitty plane that can't really do all that much. So our faith is so small and such a small entity. But our faith, our God is no Cessna. He is no commercial airliner. He is the creator God of the universe who flung the stars into orbit, who holds the ventricles of your heart together to pump blood at the same time. Lord, this is the God that we are praying to. This is the God that we have faith in. And so when we walk on the tarmac of our faith, we're not looking at a Cessna that can't do much. We're looking at the creator God of the universe. So our faith should expand. So help me. Help me then to believe more and to trust more, to walk more in faith with you. Which will lead us to this last point, that there is life in Jesus. I pray that as you leave this place, that you would recognize that there is life to be found in Jesus. That he is the great God of comfort and hope, that he is the God who gives life and who gives hope. So let's pray then together. Lord, we stop and say thank you again. We thank you for the joy of your salvation. We thank you for the joy that it is to follow and trust in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you and needs to know you, that they would walk down one of these aisles and put their faith and trust squarely in your arms. That we would expand, that you would expand our hearts and our faith. That we would be ready and active in our faith every day. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In a moment.